Thank you. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14. Just hold your spot there, and uh, we're going to get there in just a little bit. Uh, Mark, chapter 14 is where we're going to be. Well, we're continuing in the series, uh, What's in a Name, and we're coming towards the close of that series. Believe it or not, we're going to be up in the holidays here real soon. We've got a Lord's Supper service coming in a few weeks. It's always just a real special time around this time of year, and uh, really it stands alone. Those are special services anyway. But we've got one of those coming, and then we've got a series we're also going to roll out through uh, the Christmas season as well. So really coming towards the close, a couple of more Sundays or so in the series called What's in a Name. So here's what we've been doing. If you've missed one of these messages, you can access it on our website at fbcislands.com. But each Sunday, we've been looking at a different name that God reveals to us from Scripture, and uh, both Old Testament and New Testament alike. Now, starting today, the, the remaining names we're going to look at are going to be predominantly from the New Testament. But we're not looking at every single one of them, just kind of the ones that you, you hate to say are more prominent because really one name is no more prominent than the other. We're talking about God, right? Uh, but there are some of the names of God that are a little more well-known. But, but the thing is, every single name communicates something different and something unique about who God is. And I can tell you, man, it, this is no more important day than perhaps today for us to be clear on who God is. Because oftentimes you can go to a television show or listen to a podcast or something on the radio, and somebody else has a new idea that they're trying to communicate as to the nature and the character of God. And it doesn't always line up with this book, right, with the Bible. And so what we find in this series is that God does communicate to us who He is. He tells us a lot about His character, a lot about His nature, a lot about how he operates in this world. He t communicates to us who he is. He reveals that to us. And one of the ways he does it is through his names. And so we've been looking at this series, looking at the different names of God. This morning, we're going to roll one out that some of you are familiar with, others of you, maybe you've never heard before. So I remember a few years back, probably six, eight, maybe nine years ago, talking to a guy who had been coming to our church. He was a guy that a lot of folks in the community already knew. Uh, a lot of people in our town, in our city, uh, knew of who he was. He was very successful in his career. He was a man who knew a lot of people. He was well-respected uh, in his field and also just in his community. He, uh, he, uh, he was wealthy. He was successful on pretty much every single level. And he had made a decision to give his life to Jesus, uh, just a radical decision that really, in a sense, kind of went against the grain of the spiritual heritage of his family. All right, so when he chose to follow Jesus, it, it ran counter to what he had been raised to believe in regards to spiritual truth, okay? I'll just say that. And I remember talking with him, and this man in his 50s, successful on every level, well-respected, if not almost intimidated, you know, intimidating at times to some. I remember he almost became like a child when he said to me, I don't know what my dad is going to think of me if he finds out that I've given my life to Christ. And it was an interesting dynamic to see this man who was held on such a pedestal by so many, and in a lot of ways, rightly so, but to be reduced almost to, to a child worried about what his dad would think about his decision to follow Jesus. 
You know, there really is something, isn't there, to that connection between a child and their dad specifically. It's not better than or worse than a child's connection to their mom. It's just different, right? Not better, not worse, just different. But there is a significant and there is a unique bond and relationship that comes between a child and their father. And it's something that every single one of us who are in here, whether it's me or whether it's you seated out there, that every one of us can relate to that, right? Because you've all had a, had a, a, a something type of a shaping and a molding in your life that came from a relationship with your dad. Now, for a lot of you, probably you look back and say, I'm the person I am today in a good way because of the influence of my dad, right? Maybe for you, you say my dad was a good father. He was there. He was present. He was supportive. He was, he was a, a, a father who taught me right from wrong. I mean, he, was, I'm, a, I'm shaped by my father. That, that may be your perspective. Others of you will be on the other end of the spectrum and you would say, yes, I'm a product of my father, but it's despite Despite him, not because of him, right? And for some of you, you've had to kind of repackage a lot of things in your life to to undo what happened from your father because your dad may have been a poor father. He may have been absentee or he may have been just just choices that he made that had such horrible fallout for you or your family. And you look back and you think, yeah, I am who I am despite him, not because of him. And then others of you, I mean, your, your idea of your dad is, is virtually non-existent. Maybe because he wasn't there for you. Maybe he wasn't a part of your life at all, or he was there sort of in spirit, so to speak. I mean, he was present, but he just wasn't there. I mean, it was like you didn't have a relationship at all. And every single one of us can relate to one of those three. Either you've had a great dad, you've had a very poor dad, or you've had an absentee dad, right, who had no influence in your life. And the thing is, is that that has a bearing in a lot of ways on the way we see God. Many people say that the way we view God as as a heavenly father is either tinted or tainted by the way we see or saw our earthly fathers. The way we see God as a heavenly father is either tinted by, in a good way, or tainted by, in a negative way, the way we see or the way we saw our earthly fathers. Now, for me, that's kind of interesting, because if that's true, and I don't think it's true all the way through, but if it is true, then for me, I have to overcome the fact of trying to see God maybe as, a, as a, a one who wears dark dress socks with shorts and a Gilligan hat on vacation, right? Because that's kind of what my dad did. So there is a limit where we don't really, it doesn't compare completely. But I think in a lot of ways, the way we do see God as a Heavenly Father is, is shaped by, it is molded by the way we see or the way we saw our earthly fathers. And for some of you, that's difficult. Man, for some of you, I mean, you've had a real difficult time connecting to God as a father, right, in your life, because for you, there was such a, such a, there's so much baggage attached to that. And maybe if your dad was overbearing, it's hard for you to, to not see God differently than that, that he's not overbearing. Maybe for you, if, if your dad was just non-existent, you have a real hard time believing and trusting that God is going to hold true to his promises and, and actually be there the way he said he would. To the believer, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But if you had an earthly dad who often left and who often forsake, it's hard for you to connect those dots and to think, okay, so so God is different. I just have to trust this. And for many people, there's a real disconnect in how they view God personally because of the experience they've had with their earthly 
dads. There, there's a quote I came across. We'll give you two of them today. This is a shorter one, so we don't have it on the overhead. But listen to this quote. It's from a pastor, a guy named Gene Vaith. He, he says, listen to this, earthly fathers have certain remote similarities to him, meaning to God. Earthly fathers have certain remote similarities to God, but the essence of fatherhood is found in God not human beings, all right? So if we go to our, what we see as an earthly father and try to fit God into that, it's not gonna work, right? For some of us, you know, we look to people, whether, whether we're a dad or not, we look to people and we say, hey, man, that, no, that's a great father. I mean, he goes to the ball games and he provides for his family and he does this and he does that. That's a great father. I wish I could be a dad like that guy as a father, right? That's, that's, that's wonderful and we all need models, but the idea of fatherhood doesn't start with another person, the essence of fatherhood, the idea of what it means to be a father starts with God. It starts with him. And that's what leads us into this next name in the series of what's in a name. Today, we're going to look at kind of two names. You get two for one, right? And they're both free. And, uh, and so we see them both listed in scripture. Uh, this morning, we're going to separate them, but we're going to look at both of these names for God, a beautiful name that God has revealed to us in the pages of scripture, his name. And that name is Abba, Father. Abba, Father, one of the beautiful, beautiful ways that God has revealed himself, revealed his nature, revealed his character is through these two names, Abba, Father. When you look at how God has revealed himself as Father in Scripture, it's interesting because in the Old Testament, literally there are probably 15 or less places in the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, where God is referred to or refers to himself as a Father. Right? It only takes one, by the way, so it doesn't mean that he was a weak father in the Old Testament and, and, and a stronger father in the New. It doesn't mean that at all. But in the Old Testament, it just wasn't a prominent theme regarding how God revealed himself. And yet 15 or less than 15 times, he is referenced as father in the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament, however, Jesus himself in the Gospels refers to God as father over 150 times. Just in the Gospels, just Jesus refers to God as father 10 times more than the whole entire Old Testament refers to God as father. So you add to that all the other countless instances in the New Testament where God is referenced as Father, and you see that this is a very strong characteristic of the heart of God, that he reveals himself to us as Father. And to me, this is fascinating, because when you look at the Old Testament, some of the names that we've seen in the series, follow me for just a second, we've looked at how God reveals himself in the Old Testament as Elohim, fourth word of the Bible, in the beginning, God, that's the Hebrew word Elohim, it's a, it's a reference to God's power, and how he is a creative God, that, that that he is a God of all power, that he spoke into existence all of this that we see in creation, that he's a God of power. We also saw in the Old Testament, however, that he has another name, the name Yahweh. And that's the most personal name for God, used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And it's God's uh, uh, revelation of himself that he is self-existent. He's not dependent on any of us, right? Sometimes we use the wrong terminology. Well, God needs me to do this. God needs me to do that. God doesn't need us at all, right? I don't want to give a blow to your self-worth, right? That should heighten your self-worth. But God doesn't need us. He is self-existent. But he has also revealed himself on a personal level to his creation. He is Elohim, a God of power. He is Yahweh, a God who is self-existent. He is personal. He is Adonai, right? He is the owner of everything. He is master. He is Lord. He is in charge. Everything belongs to him. 
That's the God that we read of in Scripture. All those character qualities beautifully picture who God is. How amazing that on top of all of that, God also reveals himself as Father. That he's not a God with all power, who owns it all, who is without beginning, without end, who is in charge, that is here to frighten us. But rather, he is a Father who wants us to know him in personal, vibrant relationship. Now, let me, let me say this before we start to break this down. <clears throat> Oftentimes, one of the dangers in our culture of defining God is that we only define him uh, based on one or two criteria, one or two character qualities. And I would be willing to say that in a group this size, and certainly when you add our first service to this, that there are some who have a view of God that is accurate, but it's not complete. Meaning you see God as a God of truth and a God of wrath and a God of justice. And those are all completely accurate. But that's where your view of God ends. And for the majority of your Christian life, you've been afraid of him. And you've been afraid of breaking one of his rules. And when you worship him, there are strings attached. If you were to take a snippet, I'm no perfect dad. I've got three kids in here, two I guess in here right now. Hopefully we'll not voice anything at this point. But I'm not the perfect dad, right? Got a long way to go. But if you were to take a segment out of my parenting as a dad... That any of my kids at any certain point could say, you know what, my dad is, he is a dad of justice, and he is a dad who, who, um, who disciplines, and he sent me to my room for an hour, right? He's just a mean dad, right? Well, do I discipline? Yes, I discipline. But that's not the totality of who I am as a dad. That's just one segment of of who I am as a father. Does that make sense? There's often much more, hopefully, to the picture than just that. I buy him ice cream sometimes. Goodness gracious, right? <laughs> what often happens with God is that we, we view this one or two character qualities of God, and we don't view those in the, in the total picture of who God is. And when we begin to see that, yes, God is a God who's in charge. Yes, God is a God who, who demands our worship. Yes, God is a God who is a God of all power. Yes, he is a God transcendent above and beyond anything we can even fully grasp this side of heaven. Yes, he's that. But he is also a God who is Father. And all throughout the New Testament, we see that the, 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 the New Testament writers refer to God as Father. And it would have blown the minds of all of the Jewish leaders and listeners of the day. Matthew chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus is preaching for Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This message that is known today as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, they wouldn't have promoted it that day or that way in, in that day. You wouldn't have had you know, promotions going up. Hey, come to the hillside. Jesus will be preaching on the Sermon on the Mount you know, next Tuesday at 5 p.m. I mean, it, it, we've named it the Sermon on the Mount, but it is perhaps one of the most well-known blocks of Scripture uh, where Jesus just preaches truth. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, 
he is painting a picture of what righteous living looks like. His audience would have been his disciples, a lot of other Jews of the day, so it was a Jewish audience. And he makes this statement in Matthew chapter 6. He's teaching how to pray. And look at what it says here, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. He says to the, to the listeners, remember, this is going to be a Jewish audience. He says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father, he says, when you pray, when you come to God, you, you come to him as your Father. That's how a person is supposed to pray. And let me just say, I still remember one of my professors in seminary making this comment uh, uh, 20 years ago probably, and I had never thought about this. I'd never connected the dots. He said, for a Jew in the first century who was born and raised into Judaism, who moved through that system of belief. They have been taught and trained by the scholars, by the leaders, the teachers, the scribes, perhaps even the rabbis. He said, for them to hear this part of the message that day, when Jesus himself would say, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, he said, they would have fallen off their chairs. This was totally out of left field for them. They would never have even imagined coming to God with this type of a perspective regarding who he is. It would have been totally, completely foreign to them. They, they would, that transcendent, check. Elohim, power, check. Yahweh, self-existent, check. Adonai, in charge, owns everything, check. Father, uh, I don't know if I can go there. And Jesus flips the script. He says, the way you have seen God is largely accurate but it has not been complete. Here is a picture of God that is going to be brand new for you, that he is Father. So let me ask you a question real quick. So what kind of emotions does that bring up for you? Not the person next to you, for you, when you think about God as Father. I read a blog post this week of a guy named Jonathan C. Edwards. Those of you that love church history, this is not the Jonathan Edwards of the 1700s, first great awakening. Okay? This is a 2016 blog post of Jonathan Edwards, and he writes about this topic. And this is a, a lengthy quote, but I want you to read it. I decided to go ahead and, and show it. it, even though it is a lengthy quote. It's about four slides long because it's... It's just amazing what he says. Listen to what he writes. By the way, let me preface it by saying that it was 24 year, 25, he was 25 years old before he could even say the word father when he prayed. And he said when he thought of his own dad, it brought about hurtful thoughts. It brought about scary thoughts. It brought about a thought of broken things. Um, it was a, like speaking a foreign language to refer to God as father. Here's what he writes. He says, what changed it all for me was a recalibration. It took a reorientation for me to move forward in trusting the Lord and calling him Father. What do I mean? Instead of looking at my dad and then back at God, I learned to look at God first. I realized that if God wasn't my first source of fatherhood, I was always going to be off balance. If I didn't start with God, then he would always be the replica, or he would say later, the shadow, rather than the original. This recalibration took turning to Scripture to fill my mind with the true nature of God instead of turning to the empty shadow first. 
Through his gracious word, he showed me that he delights to lavish mercy. He doesn't stay angry. He takes my wrongs and faults and he covers them in his son. Since his grace and mercy are new each day, I don't have to wake up tiptoeing around his presence. I can run to him freely and confidently. Moreover, he doesn't hang my shortcomings over my head. He treats me with constant grace. And through Christ, he has made a way for me to know and to enjoy him. He can be found. He isn't hiding. He didn't leave. In fact, he came looking for me to rescue me from brokenness. And he hasn't given up on me. In the Son, I see the Father isn't hiding. On a cross, he proved that he came for me. On a cross, he proved that unlike any shadow we've seen, he alone always keeps his promises and always makes good on his commitments. Of the countless times that God is referenced as Father in Scripture, there are three places where a different word is used to highlight this aspect of who God is. Only three places. And in these three places, there is a, a word other than the Hebrew pater that translates father that's used. It's a different word, the word Abba. Now, before we go further, take the 70s band out of your mind right now. All right, kick them to the curb. If we need to have a moment to sing it, a song, we can't. I think they had one. We could probably sing it, right? So just kind of remove that. But there is a word for God as Father used in the New Testament three times, and it's this Aramaic word, Abba. It's not a Hebrew word, Aramaic. All three times when it's used, it's referencing God specifically. All three times in the New Testament when it's used, that Hebrew word, Father, is also used along with it. So let's take just a couple of minutes and roll through these three passages because I think they're significant and I think they help us to understand a little more clearly through this name exactly who God is. So the first, the first picture is going to be here in Mark chapter 14. Now one distinction about the word Abba, when you, when you read the Aramaic word Abba, it carries with it a little bit of a, of a nuance, a little different shade regarding a type of father that's being spoken of. When the word Abba is used, even outside of Scripture, it references a father, but it references a father from a perspective of tenderness, from a perspective of compassion, from the perspective of always being present. Abba is a word for father in the Aramaic language that focuses on the familial relationship that's attached to it, okay? In other words, when you use the word Abba, it's in the context of a loving relationship, of a loving family bond. That's what Abba literally means. Some people have gone so far as to say that the word Abba translates even more appropriately for us as Papa or Daddy, okay? If somebody else's kids come up to you and call you daddy, that's just a little weird, okay? But when your kids call you daddy or whatever, maybe a special name they have for you, that is just the most awesome thing to hear in all the world. And this word Abba captures that. It's significant, the three different contexts where we find this word Abba used in only the three places in all the New Testament. The first, Mark chapter 14. Here's the context. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. For those of you that are new to reading your Bibles or just kind of new to listening to messages like this, Jesus, God, the Son, came to this earth to give his life on a cross. And he didn't stay on that cross. He died for our sins, but then he rose again. Well, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane where the events of the cross just really came to a head and really got kicked into motion. Jesus is here with his disciples, and, uh, and he, God the Son, is praying 
to God the Father. And it's an intense moment. It is a very intimate moment. Mark 14 captures it for us. Let's read it from Mark's perspective, beginning in verse 32. So Mark writes that he says, They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here until I prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground, and he began to pray to the Father, right, that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's in this moment that Jesus is not weak. It's not in this moment that Jesus is uh, somehow grappling, right, with the overall plan to save mankind. It's in this moment that Jesus is human. He's 100% God, but here he's also 100% human. And he understands the dynamics of who God is as Father, right? He understands he has all power. That's why he prays that uh, he says all things are possible for you. He understands that. But it's in this context that Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father, and he's referring to him as Abba, Father, a God who can be trusted, a God who loves, a God who is there, a God who is a God of relationship. And in this particular moment, the Son of God is looking at God the the, the Father and saying, Abba. And he's focusing on the tender, compassionate, gracious, loving, faithful side of who God is. And he can reference at this crude, I mean, this is the hinge. I mean, your salvation rests on what happened in that garden, right? Because if Jesus bailed at that point, we have no hope in this world. And in that most crucial point, that hinge moment in all of Christianity, in all the history of the world, he looks at the Father and he says, Abba. The Apostle Paul would come along later and he would write a letter to a group of people in the city of Rome. Rome at this time, first century, filled with slaves. Large population of slaves in the city of Rome. Paul writes a letter called Romans to the believers in the city of Rome, many of whom, scholars believe, were probably slaves themselves. As he writes this letter to the church, the believers, rather, in Rome many of whom were slaves, many of whom probably could not read the letter for themselves. It would be read read to them. Paul uses this second use of the phrase, Abba, Father. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. I mean, this is a huge chapter of the Bible. This, I would almost say Romans 8 is like on the Mount Rushmore of chapters in the Bible for me personally. This is just an amazing chapter of Scripture. And look at, look at what Paul says. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, right? In other words, all who are followers of Jesus, who have that relationship with God, these are sons of God. 
For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit, get this, of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Put yourself in first century Rome, and you've given your life radically to this person that you've heard by the name of Jesus. And imagine that everywhere you look, in every direction in the city of Rome as a follower of Jesus, you see slavery identified. Maybe even for you, you are a slave yourself. You, by virtue of being a slave, would have a slave holder. And it would never be the case where a slave would ever look to their slave holder and refer to them as Abba, Father. And so Paul writes in this context to a group of probably largely slaves who are now followers of Jesus who look around and all they see is the fear that comes living under the authority of another fallen human being. He says to them, when you look to God, don't look to him that way. When you look to God as a follower of Jesus, realize that he has not given you a spirit of slavery that leads to fear, which you know very well as a slave living in the first century, Rome. He says, but rather through your relationship with Jesus, God has adopted you into his family. In Rome, it was not uncommon for adoption to take place. This was not foreign. This was not a foreign concept. It happened all the time. What happened with adoption in the Roman Empire was that if you had been so blessed as to be adopted into a family, you then suddenly were treated on the same level as the birth son. God is saying to these Christians in Rome, and he's saying to Christians today, sitting right here in this church, listen, if you have a relationship, God says with me, through the person of Jesus, you do not need to be afraid of me. You do not have to keep me at a distance. You don't need to jump through a bunch of hoops like coming to church and putting something in a plate or, or doing all these other kind of things to try to get me on your side to bless you. I don't operate that way. I treat you like a son of mine. You are my son. You are my daughter. You have been adopted into my family by virtue of your relationship with Jesus. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Paul says that it's through this relationship that we cry out the very same thing to God as what Jesus did in the garden that night? It doesn't mean we have a spark of divinity in us. It doesn't mean we're little Jesuses running around. But isn't it significant that the very same thing that Jesus himself cried out to God, the way he viewed God from the Garden of Gethsemane is the very same way he wants us to view him through our relationship with Christ. That is powerful. Paul would write another letter to a group of believers in the region of Galatia. It's in this letter that the third and final place occurs where this phrase, Abba, Father, is used. It's in Galatians chapter 4. Take a look at what it says here. This is a passage you may hear here in the Christmas season. We often hear this at Christmas time, speaking of the coming of Jesus. It says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's almost as though God 
wants us to understand that when we're confused in life, we don't have to work through that confusion all alone if we're a follower of Jesus, but rather we serve a Father who promises to give us wisdom, wisdom that we need because He loves us. If you're going through a difficulty, a trial, a challenge, if you face loss, if you faced uh, 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 failure, right, and you're in the midst of that lowest point of your life and you're hurting, you, Christian, have a father who's really good at comforting and caring those who hurt. In fact, he even calls you to cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He calls you to cast all of your cares on him because he loves you. That's the father that our God is. Whenever we come to a place where we are afraid, it's our Father who draws us close. Whenever we come to a place where we wander and we jump over that fence and we run off life on our own terms, right, and we get away from God, it's that Father pictured in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son who's there to welcome us back. And it's that same father mentality that God has for those who don't even know him, who are living life, and you've tasted the brokenness that comes when you live life far from God, and you know you need a Savior, and you know that you're tired of living life in your own strength, and you feel guilty and and sick and tired of the sin that characterizes who you are. It's that same father who says, you know what, I've already paid for that sin through my son, and I'm going to draw you to myself. And if you'll only come, man, you're going to see what life is like when you live under the authority of the king and the kingdom because I'm for you and I'm never going to be against you. That's the father. And for some of you today, man, you never had that picture. (laughs) You never had that picture, and you've missed him. You've missed that aspect of who God is as a God who's tender, a God who's compassionate, a God who loves. And even when he disciplines, it's ultimately in the context of that relationship of a loving father towards his child. So there's a principle that we take away. I hope you'll jot it down this morning and we're going to be done. And the principle is this, that knowing God as our father is perhaps the absolute greatest joy in all of life better than making it to the top of your career, better than having a family of your own, better than having more money than you know what to do with, better than having large amounts of friends. Knowing God as your father, as your Abba father who treats you the way he does is perhaps the absolute greatest joy in all of life. And so here's my final question as we close. Do you know him that way? Do you know him that way? And if you've never given your life to Jesus, man, the whole reason he came was to introduce you to the Father so that your sins that get in the way can be forgiven and so that you can come through him into a relationship with God that will change everything about your life. And if you've never given your life to Christ, there's no other way to get to the Father except through him. That's what Jesus said. If you've never given your life to Christ, isn't it amazing that God doesn't say, hey, come to church three times and maybe I'll let you know me. He doesn't say, hey, if you put X amount of money in the plate, maybe I'll let you know me. Hey, if you jump through all these hoops and if you obey me in these certain little areas and if you read the Bible through in a year and if you get all these other things done, maybe I'll let you know, let you know me. He doesn't say that. He says, no, come to me through my son and I will forgive you and wipe the slate clean and then I will blow you away with the love that I have for you what he invites you to, but it's only going to happen through your faith in Christ. And for those of you that already know him, are you enjoying him? (laughs) Do you really, really enjoy him? And when you sing songs of worship and when you take steps of obedience and when you read his word and when you come to church and when you talk to other people, do you do those things because you have to or are you doing because you get to?
Do you do them to jump through yet another hoop to keep God on your side? Because that's the way you see him as a deal maker. Or do you do them because you get to? In relationship with a father who loves you more than you could possibly know. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you offer to us relationship. Sadly, this world loves to take aspects of who you are out of context to paint a picture of you that in some cases is at times accurate but not complete. Lord, do you discipline? Absolutely, you do. Are you a God who judges evil and wickedness? Absolutely, you are. But God, all of those things are in the context of the fact that you are a father who loves us. And Lord, all of us in this room today are part of your creation. You have made us unique, special, and valuable. We are all creatures of God, but Lord, we are not all children of God. Lord, there is a distinction that comes, and these passages show so clearly that only those who are part of the family, only those who are adopted, only those who are children are those who have come to you through your Son turning from our sin, inviting Jesus to come in, forgive, and take over. Lord, through our baptism today with Emma and Luke and Benjamin, they painted a beautiful picture of what that looks like. It's not the baptism that makes us right. It just shows that we're proud to identify as part of your family. And Lord, today in this place, those who don't know you have the eternity-changing opportunity to lay down their sin and literally ask you, Jesus, to come and forgive them and to save them and to make them brand new. And those of us that have already responded that way and we've trusted Christ, Lord, what a game changer this is. And for some, it may, be, it may seem foreign at first, but when we pray, we can pray and come to you as a God who loves us, a God who fills that perfect role of Father over us. So, Lord, bless the decisions we need to make, the response we need to demonstrate here to this truth. Lord, as we worship and as we follow. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.